verses 12 through 19. You can open your bulletins, and inside of your bulletins, on the left-hand side is an outline you can follow. I also wanted to let you know that we are only going to cover the first part of this message this morning, just the first point. And next week we will pick up where we left off and finish off the section. But it, the section goes together, so that's why I'm keeping it together. I'm going to read. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm going to read the passage first. By the way, the title of this message is "Fruitless and Unfaithful." Sounds very positive and uplifting, doesn't it? All right, fruitless and unfaithful. That's what I want to be. Uh, certainly, I hope that's not your desire. You want to be fruitful and faithful, I would imagine. But. As we will see, the people that God was ministering to at the time were neither of those things. Neither of those things. So let's look at Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. And it's page 847 if you're using one of those blue church Bibles. Just follow along as I read the text. Verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So we're only going to be looking at the first couple of verses this morning. That section we just read has actually challenged many Bible scholars over the years and has created questions about Jesus' character and even his discernment. A few have gone on to wrongly characterize Jesus as an angry, tantrum-throwing man who wielded his supernatural power irresponsibly in this story. In a book titled, in part, Why I Am Not a Christian, published in 1957 by Bertrand Russell, he was a well-known British philosopher, a staunch atheist, and a committed critic of Christianity. You can even Google or YouTube him. They actually have YouTube videos of this character. Regarding Jesus' treatment of the fig tree, Russell accused Jesus of, quote, vindictive fury. And wrote this, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. Having died in 1970, I wonder what he's saying about Christ now. T.W. Manson, a religious scholar from the 20th century, looking at this story of the fig tree, thought that Jesus in this story was out of character. Out of character. Quote, It is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. As it stands, it is simply incredible. And I would imagine the tree huggers of America would have other things to say about Jesus' use of his power to kill this poor, innocent tree. So this morning, my hope is that you will draw different conclusions than these men have drawn about Jesus' actions with this fig tree. And that's what we're going to study. So we're going to examine Jesus' behavior toward two objects, but actually just one this morning. The first will be this deceptive tree, as I'm calling it or labeling it. The second will be a defiled temple, which we will look at next week. We're going to look at Jesus' behavior so that we might understand the reasons for his actions and then hopefully be able to reflect on the implications of his actions. So let me give you a little context just to bring you up to speed. Look back at verse 12. It says, on the following day. So historically, 
As we've been moving through the text, we know this is Monday. It is Monday in the last week of Jesus' life because He would go to be crucified on Friday of that very week. The previous day, Sunday, which we looked at last time, was all about Jesus' entry into into the city Jerusalem, often referred to as the triumphal entry. And if you were with us last week, you know that Jesus entered the city on the foal of a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah's 500-year-old prophecy, Zechariah 9.9. This was a prophecy about the promised king of Israel that would come to the nation riding on the foal of a donkey. The people received Jesus, if you were here last week, you might remember, with shouts of praise and acts of honor as they laid their clothing down, their outer cloak, and branches or tree branches to pave the road that Jesus rode in on. The events of Sunday ended with an examination of the temple area by Jesus and his disciples. And due to the late hour of the day, as the text tells us, he left Jerusalem for the night, making his way back to the town of Bethany, which would have been on the east side of the Mount of Olives, just east, southeast of the city of Jerusalem. Now, that's the context. Let's look back at the text now and begin to look at this first point, a deceptive tree. Look at chapter 11, verse 13. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. And Mark adds, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now we, this obviously raises some questions. And maybe you're thinking about these questions, so I'm just going to raise them for you. Hopefully they're the same ones you might be having. Did Jesus, in this particular story, get upset like when I get upset because I have a hunger for microwave popcorn late at night And I go to the cabinet where I know the microwave popcorn should exist, only to open it and find that the last bag has been eaten by somebody else. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is that what's going on here? Or maybe worse, like this. Maybe you've experienced this. Having a craving for Chick-fil-A and driving there on Sunday, only to find out that Chick-fil-A is not opened on Sunday, and you stand outside the doors of the restaurant and say, may no one ever eat chicken from you again. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't believe that's what's going on here. Although some have implied that. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. Additionally, was Jesus unaware that it was not <clears throat> excuse me, the season for figs, according to Mark 13? 10, 13, or 11, 11, 13, verse 13? Was he not aware of that? If he didn't know, then it would appear that he was ignorant of common knowledge that the people had about the trees that grew in their land. So that raises a problem. And if he did know that it was not the season for figs, why does he seem frustrated when the poor tree doesn't have any fruit on it. For that matter, why does Jesus even go over to the tree in the first place if he knew it was not the season for figs? These are questions that the text raises. Besides all that, what is up with Jesus talking to the tree and cursing it? which is how Peter referred to what Jesus did to this tree. If you just look over, if you're in Mark 11, just look a little bit down to verse 20. We'll get to this text in two weeks, Lord willing. And he says there, As they passed by in the morning, this is on another day, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Hmm. What are we to make of all this? 
Does anybody know? Because I have no idea. I just I was hoping someone would come up here and pick up from here. I've done the introduction. Now you step in and answer all these difficult questions. Well, we're going to start with some fig tree biology. Fig tree biology. I know you guys were all looking forward to that, but it is important to probably understand maybe what's going on here. In the area where Jesus was, fig trees produce small edible buds, usually in March. Okay, they were young, the young fruit of the tree. Locals would eat them. They were not very tasty, but it did produce fruit. And typically, it would do this before the leaves would show up on the tree in April, early April, late April. As I said, these buds were used for food by some of the locals, but it was not usually until June that the normal crop of expected figs would be formed and would ripen on the tree and then a harvest would take place. You okay? You with me so far? So March, early fruit. April, leaves. Maybe right at the same time even. But certainly if there are leaves, there would be early fruit. And then not till June would you have the full showing of figs and the good fruit that was usually harvested by these trees. Now, that's fig tree biology, what about what's going on? Remember that it's Passover. It's Passover. That's why there are so many people in Jerusalem. We talked about this last week. This is no accident that Jesus has selected this period of time to enter the city and declare his messiahship, his kingship. There are potentially millions of people, Jews present in the city, gathering for this festival that they do once a year. But according to Hebrew calendar, that festival was taking place in April. In April, during this time, at this time in history. So, it was not June. It was not June when Jesus encountered this fig tree, which means that Mark's statement that it was not the season for figs is accurate. But that still leaves us with questions. So, There are several explanations that have been put forth by Bible scholars to explain what appears to be an expectation by Jesus that there would be fruit on the tree, even though it was not the normal time of the year for figs. It was April. The normal time is June. And by the way, the right explanation will help us understand the true reasons and implications for his actions. I would imagine that most people just read over this and move right on. I have no idea what's going on there. I don't know why Jesus is interested in cursing fig trees. Let's go by and get to the next section. But if it's in the Word of God, it is important. It is important. So we want to take a look at it. Based on the tree's appearance from a distance, remember that's what the text says, from a distance Jesus sees this tree And it says that the tree, or the fig tree, was in leaf. Look back at verse 13. In leaf. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. Implying that it was full of leaves. Full of leaves. In fact, one translation called the New International Reader's Version actually interprets it that way. It says it was covered with leaves. That meant that Jesus may have expected to find the early green fruit that was edible and grew prior or in conjunction with the appearance of leaves. So it's reasonable just on that alone that Jesus could expect to find some type of early fruit on the tree. The only problem I have with that is Mark's statement about it not being the season for figs is still a little hard to reconcile with that understanding. In other words, why does Mark point out that it is not the season of figs, which typically occurred in June, when what Jesus was actually looking for is the early green fruit that could have been there in April? You understand the problem? Why even point it out? If he wasn't looking for figs, why mention it if he was looking for the early green fruit? Now, one commentator resolves the issue by suggesting that Mark's statement at the end of verse 13 about, and it was not the season for figs, could be paraphrased this way. 
It was, of course, not the season for figs, but it was for the early fruit. I don't know about that. This is a good commentator. It is, it is possible, but the text doesn't really say that. It just says, for it was not the season of figs. So in my opinion, there is a better explanation that has been offered up. It is the fig tree in leaf, full of leaves, indicate that this tree, this tree was exceptional. It was exceptional. Remember, it's early April. It would have had some leaves as it was beginning the process to move towards maturity. But this tree was in leaf or full of leaves. That is, it was possibly an early bloomer based on the extent of its foliage, which is just the tree, the leaves on the tree. And that the tree looked as if it should be at the stage of fig production, even though it was this early in the season. Now, I know some of you guys are really with me right now, and I really appreciate that, and I can imagine you're thinking in your mind, what is this, how is this ever going to relate to us? Fig tree production? Really, Jeremy? Yeah, really. I Just hold on with me. Stay with me. So I think that is what's going on here. In other words, Mark's comment then that it was not the season for, for figs can simply be pointing out that although it was not the time of the year to normally find or expect figs, that the abundance of leaves on this tree made it a special case and indicated the promise of some stage of fruit, although we know when Jesus inspected it that none was actually there. In other words, he's just pointing it out. He's drawing attention to it. Jesus goes over to look at this tree. It's full of leaves. He's expecting to find something. He found nothing. And we know it was not the season of figs. So there's something special about this tree that it would even be at the stage where there would be an expectation of fruit on the tree. One commentator says it this way. Maybe this will make more sense. This explanatory comment by Mark underlines the fact that there was no reason for expecting the tree to have figs beyond the promise of its pre-seasonal foliage. Okay? The extent of its leaves. Okay. So, when you sum it all up, because that's the kind of guy I am, I like the bottom line. Now we've worked through the, the monotonous details of this. The bottom line is that the fig tree, in a sense was deceptive. It was deceptive because it gave all the outward signs of having fruit. But upon closer inspection, none could be found. In fact, the tree was fruitless. And I think that would include even early fruit. There was nothing on the tree. No figs, no early fruit, nothing. Although the tree presented itself Otherwise, now, I went to a concert, a Christian concert last night, and I can barely, somebody in the church kept me out till midnight, just so you know, at this Christian concert, and my voice is gone, so forgive me, but we'll work through this. It was good, though. It was good. Thank you, brother. Now, if the tree is just a tree... If that's all that's going on here, then this whole story really seems kind of pointless. It really does. But if the fig tree represents something else, for instance, like the nation of Israel, then not only does the deceptive nature of the tree start to make sense, but so does Jesus' words of judgment as He spoke against that tree and said, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. So let's consider that for a moment. The fig tree is used in different ways in the Old Testament as a type for the nation of Israel. In other words, the fig tree is used in Scripture to represent something else other than the literal fig tree. That is, it symbolizes Israel in very various ways. So here's a couple of references you can write down if you 
are in the habit of doing that and looking these things up. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10. Micah chapter 7, verses, verse 1 and following. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 17. thought it would be good at least to look at one of those references. Micah from the Old Testament, chapter 7, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. Just look up on the screen. Micah is speaking to the nation of Israel for God as God's prophet. And he says to them, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. Now, Stop right there. You might be thinking he's just talking about where's all the fruit gone in the land. I've come in and I've really got an aching for that first ripe fig, but it's gone. You guys had a bad season. That's not what he's talking about. And you begin to see that when you get to verse 2. The godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. And as you read on, you see that this is a rebuke against the nation of Israel and their sin and their ungodliness and their rebellion against their God and the wickedness of their ways. And he's saying, you're like that. I've come to you expecting to find that that good fruit, but the land is barren. There's none to be found. So that's just one example. Additionally, this encounter with the tree, and it's important to note this, takes place when? On his way to Jerusalem. The city he was just in the day before, the city where he declared his Messiahship, where they hailed him as king. It is the great city of Israel. And more importantly, beloved, he has now come back on Monday and he is on his way to that city to enter the temple where he is going to disrupt the temple in ways that are shocking and very controversial. Throwing tables around, kicking people out, forbidding people to walk through the temple. The temple, beloved, is the central, was the central place of worship for the people of God, for the nation of Israel. The temple, which we will look at next week in detail, Don't miss it. Don't miss it. It was beautiful in appearance. It was breathtaking. It was magnificent. It was huge. It was big. And it was abundant with activity, especially at this point in the year when they're celebrating the Passover. It indicated, at least when you first looked at it, that a great amount of worship was taking place. But beloved, appearances don't always communicate reality, do they? They don't. As was the case with the tree, as was the case with the nation of Israel at this time in history. If you remember, just a few chapters back in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says these words in verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The appearance of activity and worship, but not the reality. Now, good Bible scholars do not see this event associated with this fig tree as an angry response by Jesus to a tree that he was hoping would satisfy his hunger. Can you imagine? That's what they're saying. That's what they're suggesting. Jesus just got angry. You stupid fig tree, I'll show you. Let me pull out my supernatural God power. Well, bam! There you go. That's right. Wither. What? What? That would be out of character with Jesus if that's what he was doing. That's what we might do. That's why it's good I don't have supernatural powers, beloved. It's good. Because Chick-fil-A would be gone, I'm telling you right now. 
I just have a thing with that. But Instead, beloved, good Bible scholars see this as a warning and prediction by Jesus of the judgment that was coming to Israel and Israel's temple for the hypocritical worship having an outward appearance, now listen, an outward appearance of being a holy people, but lacking the fruit of righteousness that people devoted to God should have. One of the earliest commentators on Mark was from the 5th century. 5th century. And the writer understood the fig tree event in exactly that way. He saw it as a symbolic or symbolic of the judgment that was going to happen to Jerusalem. Now let me read you a few modern day commentaries who see this particular situation with the fig tree exactly the same way. And they all are saying the same thing, but a little differently. And I hope it helps you get this before we move on from this point. One commentator says, The tree is fully leafed out. And in such a state, one would normally expect to find fruit. This symbolizes the hypocrisy and sham of the nation of Israel, which made her ripe for the judgment of God. A people which honored God with their lips, but whose heart was at all the time far from Him, was like a tree with an abundance of leaves and no fruit. Another writer says, Israel, like the fig tree, appeared to be thriving. But the appearances were deceiving because Israel and the fig tree were bearing no fruit. Just as the fig tree was cursed and withered, so Israel was about to be consumed. Another writer. Jesus' strong denunciation of the tree, which Peter later regarded as a curse, and we looked at that in verse 21, was a dramatic, prophetic sign of God's impending judgment on Israel. Not an angry reaction because Jesus was hungry and found no food. The promising but unproductive fig tree symbolized Israel's spiritual barrenness despite divine favor and the impressive, and it was impressive, the impressive outward appearance of their religion. And one more. Focusing more on the temple, the writer says, and its immediate relationship to the fig tree, because you're going to see we move right from the fig tree to the temple, back to the fig tree. It's like a sandwich. And when Mark has done that in the past, it's a clue that the meaning to everything is tied together like a sandwich. So there's something going on with the fig tree and the temple. They go together. He says, Just as the leaves of the tree concealed the fact that there was no fruit to enjoy, so the magnificence of the temple and its ceremony concealed the fact that Israel had not brought forth the fruit of righteousness Demanded by God. Beloved, on Sunday Jesus entered the city, and we looked at this last week, to shouts of praise. Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King, even, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But I mentioned this last week, and you should see it now in the text for yourself. In Luke 19, while that is occurring, while all that praise is going on, Jesus is weeping. Luke 19, verse 41. And when He drew near and saw the city, He wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now 
they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus had just entered the city, but he was already talking about Jerusalem's future destruction, which, by the way, historically actually occurred in A.D. 70, just as Jesus had predicted. Rome leveled the city. They leveled it in response to a Jewish uprising, and they killed and butchered upwards of a million Jews. On Monday, Jesus cleansed the temple, but the following day, and we'll get there, Tuesday, Mark records these words in Mark chapter 13. So if you're in Mark, you can just turn to the right, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, and as he, or Mark records, and as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said, I love your positive attitude. He said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Wow. Why was Jesus giving so many gloomy predictions? Well, if we understand the message behind the fig tree as I have been describing it, then we know why. It was because the religiosity that was on display in the nation of Israel was just that. A display, beloved. But it lacked any real substance. Therefore, it was doomed to fail because it lacked the true fruit of God. And that became abundantly clear a few days later on Friday when the nation called for Christ's death. So, This brings me to some possible implications for us. We are not the nation of Israel. If we are born again, we are part of the glorious church, the bride of Christ. But how might this apply to us? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that the things that happened to Israel when they were brought out of the nation of Egypt by God, and those things happened to them because of their rebellion against God, even in the face of God's mercy and compassion and power, they rebelled. And God judged them significantly. And Paul says those things happened that we might learn from their mistakes from their example of what really not to do. So maybe this morning we can, we can learn from their example of what not to do. So let me say this. The impressive outward appearance of religion in all its forms is absolutely no substitute for a vital and real relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. No substitute, beloved. A Christian who remains fruitless, and by that meaning that the fruit of righteousness is being produced in their life. Perfect? Please, no but progressively being changed. Progressively saying no to sin. Destructive behaviors to what God says is wicked. And they are actively moving towards righteousness. 
their own? No. But the righteousness that the Spirit of God produces in their life. But if a Christian has none of those things, they remain fruitless, and yet they masquerade as a follower of God through religious practices. And this is common. They should consider the message and warning of the fig tree and repent and turn to Christ before it is too late. Beloved, religion alone is very good at producing something that looks good and promising, like the fig tree, as one complies with all of its rules and regulations. But it is empty. It is fruitless. And in the end, it is absolutely pointless. Religion cannot save, nor has it ever saved, anybody from their sin. Not only the penalty, but its power over their lives. Only a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, founded and built upon repentance and faith, can provide real and enduring change. Real and enduring change. Joyful and voluntary obedience. Not guilt-ridden or being beaten over the back to get you to comply. And only a relationship, authentic, grounded in repentance and faith, can produce authentic and pure worship of God. True fruit. You know, we struggle, we have problems in our Christian life, right? But the answer to our problems, beloved, is never an increase in our religious activity alone. And that is one of my greatest fears. That people would respond to their problems by simply saying, if I just increase my religious activities, join more groups, even read my Bible more, Alone. That somehow the activity will make me right with God that will produce the spiritual fruit that I do not see in my life. And beloved, just like the temple, it had all kinds of activity, all kinds of people going and coming. Judaism was filled with ritual and practice and form. So much religious activity, but the people's heart was far from God. And even today we have places, and I wonder sometimes, seeing churches with 50,000 programs and a million different ways to be involved religiously, saying nothing negative or positive about the programs, but saying this, that thinking that somehow being involved in such things will produce fruit in your life. It doesn't, beloved. It doesn't. You know you can read the Bible from cover to cover and if there's nothing really inside of you, specifically the Spirit of God, nothing will happen. Nothing. And then people wonder, why aren't I changing? I've read the Bible. I've gone to the groups. I've shown up to church. No change in my life. That's because you're trying to accomplish change through religious activity. And you see what it got Israel. They crucified their King and Savior. Jesus said that they were hypocrites, worshiping God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. You know what's going to increase our production of fruit? You know what's going to bring fruit? It's going to be a real relationship with Jesus Christ. It has to start there. It means at some point in your life you have come before Him and expressed your absolute need for the salvation that is available through Him and Him alone. You recognize that without Him and His salvation, you would suffer at the end of your life under the wrath of Almighty God and you would deserve every bit of it. 
Every bit of it. And you have now cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ and received by faith the forgiveness that is available through Him. And have recognized you have nothing to offer God, as Chris said. I have nothing. No righteous bone in my body. But that is not why I approach the throne of grace and boldness. I approach it because Christ has clothed me now in His very righteousness. Imputed it to my account. I was bankrupt spiritually before the King. But now I am loaded with His righteousness. See, it starts there and then it increases as you do not increase your activity and religious activities alone or your participation, but you increase in your love for Christ. In other words, when I read the Bible, this is not a religious activity I do, but it is a way for me to fall more in love with Christ. When I come to church, it is not just a religious thing I do to check off the good deed that I did for the week, to relieve a little guilt of all the sin that I practiced on Monday through Saturday. No, I come here to fall more in love with Christ. And as that takes place in your life, fruit will be a manifestation. Righteous fruit as you grow deeper, not necessarily in your religious activity, but in your love for the One who gave His life to redeem you not only from the penalty of sin, but now, here in the present, the power of that sin in your life. And beloved, if you're here, and this is all nonsense to you, and your life is filled with sin, and yet you come, stop it! Nothing's going to change. You coming into this building or even reading the Bible cannot change you. You know what changes you? Get on your knees and cry out for God to save you through His Son, Jesus Christ. And then ask Him to increase your love for Him until that love conquers your love for sin and this world. And it will. It will. John chapter 15. Don't turn there. Listen to this word from the Lord. Jesus says, I I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Did you see that? Look at that close. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. It is going to happen. If, if I abide in Christ and Christ in me, something's got to go on. Something's got to happen. The problem with Christianity today is we are saying now, you can be a Christian and nothing can happen. That's a lie. It's a lie, beloved. And just like the nation of Israel, keep it up there, just like the nation of Israel was deceived, all this religious activity, we must be okay. All the while, their hearts had moved farther and farther away from God. Beloved, if their heart was right, then that religious activity would have glorified God. Nothing wrong with religious activity. If we're coming to it with the right motive and purpose if we're using it as an expression of our love of Jesus Christ or in order to know Him and love Him more, if that's the focus, nation was deceived. We deceive ourselves and even pulpits preach nonsense that people can continue to willfully live in sin with no change in their life. And because one day they raised their hand and said, I accept Jesus. Or walked along aisle with 4,000 other people and signed a card that they're good with God. And you know what? They even are involved in religious activity. They may even go to church religiously. 
They may even have a big Bible that they carry around. All those things. Wonderful. But you know what? On Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, they're still stuck in pornography. They still hate their wives. They still mistreat their children. They still gossip. They still slander. No change. And they say they're Christian. And we say they're Christian. No. Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. That's good to know. That's exactly right. I don't got a single righteous bone in my body. They're all corrupted, every single one of them. It flows in my blood. My organs are filled with it. And apart from Christ in me and me in Him, I certainly could do nothing that would bring Him honor and glory. Yes, Jesus, for apart from You, I can do nothing. And then He says, If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. This is a non-fruit-bearing branch. There's no life. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. With Jesus, beloved, there is true life and true fruit. It is available for those who truly know Christ and are abiding in Him and living to fall more in love with Him, knowing that that love will conquer their desire for sin. But without Him, there might be religious activity, but there is only death and barrenness and coming judgment. That's it. You know what? We might be able to fake others out. Right? From a distance, the tree looked like it was fruit-bearing. But upon closer inspection by Jesus Christ, He determined that the tree was a deceiver. We can fake others out, but we will not be able to fake Jesus Christ out. And when He comes looking, beloved, is He going to find fruit on our branches? Spirit produced fruit because we abided in Jesus Christ, because we truly had given our life to Him and placed our faith in His salvation? Or will He just find a bunch of suggestive and deceptive leaves? Is that all He'll find? I hope not. So think seriously about the message today. If you are, if you have no evidence in your life of being a follower of Jesus Christ, stop telling yourself you are. That's the bottom line. Stop it. And make a decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Fall on your knees and cry out for His mercy to save you and begin to really change you. And beloved, for those of us who we are fully and completely convinced that we know Jesus Christ because we have seen already the work that has taken place in our lives, then know this, that will increase as our love for Jesus Christ increases. It will not increase because you join more service teams on the church. Or because you attend more church functions. Or even a cursory reading of your Bible. It will increase because you are falling more and more in love with this Jesus. And then sin and the world just doesn't look that attractive anymore. Let's pray. Father, I pray I pray that in the end 
when you examine Summit Bible Church, which is not a building, it's not a place, but it is the people. I pray, Father, that it would be loaded with your fruit. Father, the last thing we want to be is a full-leafed tree pretending or presenting ourselves in some manner that is not the reality. Father, even becoming a church that is busy and full of activity and programs, but all the while having left our first love and moved far away from the cross, only to find ourselves in hypocrisy. Father, for Your sake and for Your glory, I pray that You would have Your way with us, even now. And Father, Your Spirit would convict and draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself, either for the first time, for really, for really, or Father, continuing to draw us as we, as we sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Father, would you remove that from us? Would you kill that in us? Would it not be okay to sing that in some way? Would we, would we be able to say prone to follow you and love you and stop getting caught up in all the garbage of this world? Father, do that work in us so that our tree is not barren. Produce in this body your righteous fruit for your glory that Jesus Christ might be lifted up in us and among us as the great Savior and transformer of His people, moving them from the corruption and deceit and destruction of sin and moving us to a life of righteousness and the glories and the joy and the hope that we find within. In Jesus' name, Amen.